Thanks for listening to the podcast of Hope Church in East Hampton, Connecticut. Our mission is to love God, love people, and serve the world. To find out more about Hope Church, be sure to check out our website at cthope.com. I'm just going to start with prayer this morning. I know it's been... uh... A heavy week, another heavy week, I should say, and so I just want to just want to reset a little bit, even um, coming out of this worship time. Uh, God, I thank you, thank you for your presence. I thank you um, for this song that reminds us that sometimes even when we can't see, you're working, God, that you are. And I just pray for um, every person here that, however we've walked in today, whether it's feeling anxious or fearful or um, angry or disillusioned, God. Um, I believe you're the God who meets each of us exactly where we are. Um, May your presence just continue to be in this place, and may we feel you. Um, May you lead us to hope, and may you lead us to light. Amen. So I think it's probably no accident that I'm starting, we're starting a new series here uh, this week called What Would Jesus Deconstruct? That's uh, kind of a playful, I'm sure you've heard of What Would Jesus Do? Uh, what Would Jesus Deconstruct? So raise your hand if you've heard of deconstruction as it relates to the church or faith. Maybe a few of you. So in my circles, a lot of my friends, it's, it's kind of a buzzword right now. You can go online. There's, there's podcasts all about deconstruction. There are, are blog posts and all these things you can read. Um, and really, people would define deconstruction differently. Um, I would say basically deconstruction has to do with asking ourselves, what do I believe? And, and why, and does it really hold up? Does it really hold up to, to real life and the real experiences that I'm having to the questions and circumstances that we may face. And for some people, deconstruction is um, a process, honestly, that leads, leads them to walk away from the church or walk away from faith because if they, if they feel like they can't reconcile what they're experiencing in life with, with what they believe, then sometimes people do walk away from the faith. But, but there's also other people um, who, who just have these questions, who have these, these concerns, and they want to know, how does this line up with the Bible? What does God say about this? And so there's a lot of different reasons people may deconstruct. For some, honestly, deconstruction starts with with abuse or wounding, even within the church. Um, You know, you've heard of of the Me Too movement, and unfortunately, as many of you have heard or if you've read in the news, the church is not exempt from, from that kind of abuse sometimes, and it's a tragedy. And so you have the church too, kind of parallel movement, um, and people, people are wounded, people are hurt. Even at a smaller scale, you, you can sometimes hear of just, I mean, honestly, we just finished this message series on difficult people, and as Tom said so well, difficult people derail us, and they, um, you know, discourage us. There were a lot of other D words he used, I don't remember them all. Sorry, Tom, I'm going to go back and study. But the truth is that difficult people exist in the church too, right? Sometimes we want to think that the church is a place that's free of difficult people, but it's simply not true. And so unfortunately, there are times when the church can create a wound for people. We're hurt, we're overlooked, we're minimized, we're devalued. And I just want to say, first of all, if that's you, if you've, if you've had spiritual abuse, if you've had any kind of, of wounding within the church, I just want to say, I see you and, and I'm sorry. And I know that doesn't fix it, but I just want to put it out there. Sometimes we need to know that, that we're seen and that it's um, that it's okay to feel that way, to feel unsure in the church. 
But not only are, are people dealing with these um, maybe, maybe abuse or difficult people in the church, but, but we also just have questions, right? I think a lot of people have questions and wrestles and even doubts in their life. Um, I was looking at a 2017 Barna survey that says that two-thirds of Christians face doubt. Now, I, I would imagine that that's actually a little bit higher, that actually more people experience doubt than maybe the survey reveals. Um, but what's interesting is this. In response to doubt, 45% of people who may have doubts, their response is to leave the church. Their response is, is to not stay in a worship setting. Um, the survey said that four in 10 doubters would talk to friends about the things they were, were questioning or wrestling through, but only one in three would go to a pastor or a church leader when they're facing doubt. So this is interesting to me for a couple of reasons. First of all, um, I wonder if we believe somehow that the church is the place for people, only people that have all the answers already. I wonder if somehow we've made the church feel like a place where unless you have it together, you can't, you can't come in and be safe. I know that's not our hope here at, at Hope Church, but, um, but maybe, maybe people feel that way, that it's not okay to come into the church unless I can get rid of all the questions that I have. I almost picture like, you know, when you go through airport security and, and you have to get rid of all the liquids and the, you know, anything hazardous and they make you either throw it away or get rid of it before you get on the plane and go through security. And I wonder if we have that, that image when we walk into a church building. Do we feel like, when I go through these doors, okay, I've got I've to put away this. I can't, nope, can't have the questions, can't have the, the doubt, can't bring, can't bring this fear in, can't bring this part of myself in because that's not going to be okay. And man, I, I, I would hope that's not the case but I wonder if that's what we end up perpetuating sometimes. In fact, I would suggest that there is, for every person in this room probably, there's probably at least one question that you would be afraid to ask inside a church building. That you'd be afraid, man, if I ask this question, they're going to think I am like so far gone. They're going to they're say I'm not a good Christian. They're going to say whatever it is. I would, I would suggest that because I've, I've got questions. I've got questions that I think I would have a hard time asking just anyone because you do, you worry what people might think, whether you'd be okay. And I actually think that if we were honest and we, more of us would be willing to ask those questions, we'd probably find that the person sitting next to you has had a similar question, that they're wrestling through a similar thing. And even you know, as my life group has, has shown me time and time again, it is when we're honest, it is when we bring those questions into the open that we have true community, that we have true relationship, and we can actually experience more of God, um, honestly, through the questions. And that sounds backwards, but I don't think it is. So what are some kinds of questions that we may be asking? Well, even in the wake of, of what happened in Buffalo, what happened this past week in, um, in Texas, I'm, I'm sure many people are thinking, how could a good God allow something so tragic to happen? Where was God in that? What happened there? Why does God let good, bad things happen to any good people? You know, maybe, maybe we think... Um, People say that God loves me, but people don't, people don't know what I've done. And I'm not really sure if God would love me if he knew everything that I've experienced, that I've done. We might look at the Bible and say, how come sometimes I read the Bible and it seems to say this, but other people say it says this, and, and I can't make sense of that. So what does that mean? Does that mean I don't believe enough? If two different Christians believe two different things? Maybe it's the way that we experience 
you know, other believers, we say, I mean, people say that God is love. People say that God is this. And then I, and then I saw that same person turn around or that same group of, of people turn around and, and do this thing. And it doesn't make sense. It doesn't line up. Is, is God, is that who God really is? And so I think deconstruction is often triggered by discrepancy, discrepancy between what we're experiencing and what we're, what we're believing. And it, it makes us ask, okay, God, is, is this really you? Who are you really? And so why should we even talk about this? This may seem a little heavy or a little bit like, like aren't we supposed to just talk about faith up here? And I would ask, why do we think that questions and faith can't go together? I actually believe the first thing that we need to know about deconstruction is that um, I really believe that God wants all of us at different points to go through some kind of deconstruction, some kind of of, um, process where we, we hold what we believe in our hands openly and we say, okay, God, what am I really believing? What is the foundation of what I'm believing? Have I built things on this foundation that are not in line with you and your kingdom and your love and who you are? And if so, I don't, I don't want to keep building on that. I want to let you break those things down so that you can rebuild what is true, what is real. And also, deconstruction matters because people matter. Deconstruction matters because people matter deeply to God and should matter deeply to us. And a lot of times with deconstruction issues, we can turn it into this theology issue. We can say, okay, we got to figure out all the right answers to give to people um, so that they don't walk away from their faith, so they don't struggle, so they don't wrestle. But the truth is, we can, we can turn it so that we focus too much on, on that and, and miss the whole point that, that it's people. People have stories, they have hurts, they have wounds. And are we meeting people where they are. God has not called us simply to be, you know, a, a, a church that's like for good moral people and that we monitor morality, but a place where people are safe to come and express what they're struggling with. It sometimes means that we actually have to um, not, just, not just accept people in this building, but we have to learn how to go where people are. That the church is not just this building or, or this group of people or even any church building that exists today. Um, when people are hurting and they are not feeling okay inside the church building, maybe we need to start going out and loving people where they are. And as the survey says, you know what, as much as I would love for people to come talk to me if they're struggling or wrestling or to talk to Tom or one of our leaders here, the truth is, the survey shows that people are more likely to talk to you. They're more likely to talk to their friends, their spouses, their neighbors. And you are that leader that can go and be love and show love. And it doesn't mean you have to have all the answers for everyone, but it means that you get to point them to a God who does have the answers, who is the answer, who has hope. And you don't have to rush people through those questions. Sometimes they just need to know that it's okay to have them. So I want to talk today a little bit about deconstruction and about what that might look like for us and about how we can even respond to people that maybe even you know right now who are wrestling, who are struggling. And I want to make this point too today that deconstruction does not always have to end in, in destruction and doubt. It can also lead to resurrection and resilience or what I would call reconstruction. It doesn't always have to end in this doubt and this destruction that we sometimes imagine that it will. It can really be this beautiful thing that God allows to be a catalyst to regrow 
what he wants in us. In fact, I was reading this week that someone said that they feel like um, the deconstruction movement in some ways might actually be this revival that the church has been praying for because it's people who are starting to say, okay, God, what, what's really of you and what's not? And would you speak to us? And would we repent? And would we change where you want us to change? And that's the start of revival. And I thought that was an interesting point they made. So we're going to look today at a couple stories from the Bible, um, which I believe actually are stories of deconstruction, if you want to break it down to, to the nuts and bolts of what's happening. So we're going to look at one story in the Old Testament, and then we're going to do a short story in the New Testament as well. Um, and I'm going to have a few questions that I want you to think through as we listen to these stories. But first, the first story I just want to set up for you quickly. Um, this is the story of Jonah. Who has heard of the story of Jonah? Now, who, who calls it a big fish and who calls it a whale? There's, it's a hot debate in the church, right? <laughs> um, uh, Jonah is this prophet in the Old Testament. So he was a man who was sent and would have a message to give to the people from God. And the prophets in the Old Testament, I'm, if I'm honest, the, God often asked the prophets to do some pretty ridiculous things. So there's like the prophet Ezekiel. There's a story where, as an elaborate object lesson, he had to, like, tie himself down and cook food over, I think, cow dung, and it was all supposed to be a metaphor for something, and I'm like, really, God? That's, okay, all right. Um, and then there was Hosea, who was asked to marry someone who was going to be unfaithful to him, and again, it was this metaphor that his life was supposed to re represent Israel's unfaithfulness to God, and, and again, I think, God, that's, that's kind of a, a lot to ask of someone. And then we have Jonah, and by comparison, God did not actually ask him to do something that ridiculous. The Bible tells us that God told Jonah to go to Nineveh, to preach to this people in Nineveh because, um, because they were wicked, because they had been doing evil things. And God actually did not want to punish them. Instead, he wanted Jonah to preach to them so the people would repent and turn to him and that God would save them. Doesn't seem like that much, right? Now, I'm gonna, I will put up a map here. Um, in Jonah's defense, it was a pretty long distance. He was here in Joppa, and he was supposed to go to Nineveh, which was 550 miles away. And I don't know, maybe he was worried that he wasn't going to get proper travel reimbursement for that. Um, so there was, there was the travel. That was, that was a significant journey for him. But Jonah, for whatever reason, decides, you know what, I'm actually not. I'm not going to obey God. I don't want to go preach to Nineveh because actually I really prefer that, that God would smite them. That would be better in my mind. And so he decides he's going to, instead of going 550 miles, he's going to flee 2,500 miles in the other direction towards Tarshish. And I feel like there's a, there's a lesson in here for us too that, you know, sometimes instead of going a little out of our way to be, to be loving Sometimes it's way easier for us to go way out of our way to be like really, really rude to people or just really like ignore them and not be there for them. And so this to me, I was like, okay, God, maybe there's a lesson for me somewhere in here. Um, but Jonah decides, forget it. I'm not obeying God. I'm going, I'm going over this way. I'm doing my own thing. And as you probably know in the story, um, this is where when he flees, he's in the boat, there's a big storm that comes up, and he tells the people that he's sailing with, he says, you know what, the only way you can end this storm is to throw me overboard. This is my fault. So the people throw him overboard. He's swallowed then by either the whale or the big fish. And then he's sitting in the fish. And if you've ever spent any time in a fish, you know, it is a great place for a change of heart. <laughs> in my experience. No, no, that's, I'm trying to think, no, no anyway. 
Um, so yeah, Jonah has a change of heart inside the fish. And so he, he repents and he says, okay, God, fine, I will go. I will go to Nineveh and I will preach to them. And so he does. He goes there. He preaches to Nineveh. The people in Nineveh, I encourage you to go to the book of Jonah. It's actually only a few chapters. And you should see the way the people of Nineveh respond to Jonah and the way that they repent. It's, it's actually very amazing. Um, and usually, this is where the story ends. You know, like when we teach the, the pre-K kids, when we, whatever. Like, it's always we, like, wrap it up nice and neat. And Jonah saves the day. And God saves the day. And everyone's happy. But the truth is, this story actually ends with Jonah pretty ticked off. And so, we're going to read in Jonah chapter 4. And as we read this part of the story, I want you to think through a couple things. Um, The questions I want you to be asking yourself is, what is Jonah's reaction? What is Jonah's reaction to what God does? What does that reaction tell us about, about something that Jonah believes? what he believes about God or what he believes about himself? And then what is God's response to Jonah? And what does that teach us about maybe what God wants to deconstruct in Jonah's life or maybe even in our own lives? So we're going to read this and just keep those thoughts in mind as you read. Jonah 4, uh, verse 2 through 11. It says, He, Jonah, prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord? When I was still at home, this is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take my life away, for it is better for me to die than to live. All right, we got a little bit of the drama, the dramatic person here. The Lord replied, though, is it right for you to be angry? And Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. So I feel like Jonah's sitting there, almost like he's got like his popcorn and his little futon, and he's like, maybe God's still going to destroy Nineveh. Like, it's a little twisted, right? Like he's sitting there waiting for God to do uh, what he thinks God should do. Verse 6 says, Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head, to ease his discomfort, and Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head. So he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, It would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and it died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh? So first of all, what what do you see? What is Jonah's reaction to God rescuing Nineveh? He's angry. He's really angry. In fact, he's even like maybe depressed. Like this is to him a a huge problem. And I think sometimes we may notice this in our own lives. Sometimes when we have a really strong reaction like anger, depression, or um, a fear, which we'll talk about more later, sometimes it's a sign that, man, we are believing something that is not matching with, with what we're experiencing. Something does not feel right to us. So why was Jonah really mad? 
I think part of it is that Jonah was bumping into this part of God that, that was offensive. God is a God who abounds in love and mercy. And Jonah felt like some people should get mercy and other people should not get mercy. And, and maybe much like we could sit and ask, well, how, how could a good God let this happen? Jonah says, how could a good God let someone get away with all these horrible things they've done? And, and this is a part we have to wrestle with all of us, that it's easy for us to want, want mercy for some people, want mercy for ourselves, and somehow we, we don't think that other people may deserve mercy. I actually found it ironic as I was reading this passage again that in a lot of ways, Jonah's own disobedience and his story parallels Nineveh's story. So Nineveh turned away from God initially. They were, they were doing their own thing and they were doing evil in God's eyes. But what does Jonah do? Jonah ran away from God. He went the other way. He did his own thing. And Jonah, like the people of Nineveh, then has this change of heart. He has this repentance moment where God pulls him back and he finds that God is merciful to him. And there's this whole, this whole moment where he's in the fish and, and he's praying to God and he says, he says, with shouts of grateful praise, I sacrifice to you. Salvation comes from the Lord. And so you see that Jonah is very thankful that he gets mercy from God. But somewhere along the line, I think that Jonah feels like he gets to decide who gets mercy and who doesn't. And God wants to tear that part down. He says, no, I, I'm the Lord. I'm sovereign. I get, I get to, to show mercy to anyone, even if it doesn't seem right to you. Another thing I see here is, so with Jonah's Jonah's got this anger, and it shows what he's believing about God. And then we see God's reaction to Jonah. Now, does, does God, like, yell at Jonah? Does he, you know, just say, knock it out, stop it? No, he, he's patient with Jonah. In fact, in fact, he takes the time, once again, to, to allow this elaborate object lesson. This vine grows up over Jonah and then has time to, to, uh, to wither and die. God is patient with Jonah just as he's patient with Nineveh. And he's patient to let Jonah wrestle through these things. And to be honest, at the end of the story, we don't know how, how the story really ends. It doesn't resolve. It still ends with Jonah being kind of mad. But I, I think this shows that sometimes, um, sometimes I think as Christians, we, we think that the, the right response to people is, man, I need to get them through their wrestle as quickly as possible. I need to find the right verse. I need to get them through. I need to give them the right answers. And I think God teaches us a little different way, that sometimes we can't put an expiration date on the wrestling Sometimes we need to let people walk through something, even if it takes time, and to recognize that, that God shows patience to us, and in the same way, we can show patience to others. I also think it's interesting that, again, Jonah here clearly expected God to do something different, and then God acted in a way he wasn't expecting. And any time God does something we don't expect, we need to pay attention I would say anytime God does something or acts in a way that we don't expect, we need to pay attention because it may be in that discrepancy that God wants to teach us something, that he wants to help either break something down or build something in our lives that's closer to his heart to lead us further into who he really is and who we really are. And this leads me to my second story for the day, and this is going to be the, the New Testament. We're going to jump to um, actually Jesus and an interaction that he has with a woman that he meets. And I, this story, I think, also teaches us a little bit about, um, 
about someone who maybe, maybe would have felt hurt. If they, were, if they were in the church setting today, this person might represent someone who feels abused or, or rejected or overlooked. And so again, I want us to see, um, once again, to ask these similar questions. What happens in the story? What, what is the woman experiencing and what is her reaction to what Jesus does? What does that reaction show us about what she believes about God or what she believes about herself? How does Jesus respond to her? And what does Jesus want to shift in her, maybe shift in your own heart by the way that he responds to her? Uh, so we're going to go to Mark 5, 24 through 34, if you're reading along. A large crowd followed and pressed around Jesus. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of growing better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, trembling with fear. She told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. So before I ask the, the questions I mentioned earlier, I want to just set up this background for this story a little bit. First of all, um, you need to know that for, for this woman, um, her, her condition was not just a physical suffering, but it would have affected a lot of her social and her spiritual life as well. Um, you see, in the Old Testament, there was um, a law in Leviticus 15, 25 through 27, that talks about um, if a woman was bleeding, she was considered unclean. If you were unclean, then anyone who touched you was also unclean. And she would have, um, in, in many ways, probably felt excluded, um, unseen. There may have been some part of this illness then that, that created a shame for her, a sense that she was not okay, that she could not be around others, um, a sense that, again, if she touched someone else or if they touched her, that, um, that she was doing something bad. I can only imagine how she must have felt. And so, initially, we see that she, that she has this incredible faith, right? She's desperate. She's like, I've been, I've been to so many doctors. I've done all the things, but I've heard about this Jesus guy, and I believe he can heal. And so, in some ways, she has this foundation, this accurate foundation of who Jesus is. But after, after she touches Jesus's, the hem of his garment, what is, what is her reaction when Jesus asks who touched her? Does anyone remember what, the, what her reaction is? Fear. She is fearful and trembling. And I have to wonder what was going through her mind. Is she suddenly realized, maybe, maybe like some of us feel, like, am I going to be found out? Oh, is he, is he going to know that I, that I did this? Is he going to be angry with me? Is Jesus going, going to accuse me of defiling him by touching him? Is he going to cast me away like so many of the religious leaders have? The people that, that maybe I, I wanted to go to for safety, 
and, and I felt cut off from. She has this fear. She has this, this trembling response. And, it, and maybe it reveals something about what she's believing about Jesus, that he's angry. She thinks he might be um, upset with her somehow. But we see that she's honest with Jesus. And this is the story of this woman. I, I think she teaches all of us something so powerful because she, she stands up and she tells the whole truth about what happened to her. And I really believe she teaches us that when we approach God, man, I think there's so many things we want to hold back. We want to, we want to kind of hide from God. And I think there's something so powerful when we can lay the full truth of who we are and how we feel before God because I think it's only in our honesty and in our truth that God can then fill us with, with all this truth about who he is. That he can hold all those things about how we're feeling and how we're, we're, um, what we're believing. And that he can reshape those things. And so, Jesus responds to her in a way that surprises her. He looks at her. And in fact, you know what's interesting about this story too? Is that Jesus was on his way to heal a girl who was dying. Man, you could say Jesus was on his way to do something very important. Why would he stop? The, the woman's already healed. Why would he even bother to stop and acknowledge her? But I think Jesus did this so intentionally. I think Jesus knew this woman felt unseen and unvalued and unloved. And I think his, his stopping to see her was his way of saying, what you've believed about me is wrong. What you believed about you is wrong because I see you, I love you. And I am giving you an inclusive identity. He calls her daughter. He says, you're in a family, you belong. And I love you. And I really think that for this woman, that must have just broken all these things off of her. All this, this feeling that she was trapped and not free, not just physically, but spiritually and emotionally. God wanted her to be free in his truth. He wanted to deconstruct in her those lies that she had been believing. Because anytime Jesus does something we don't expect him to do, we have to pay attention. He wants to teach us something. And so I would challenge you I would challenge you, first of all, as you read the Bible, this could be one exercise that you try. When you read through the stories of Jesus, especially, whenever Jesus does something and the people in the story react, like, whoa, why would you do that? This doesn't seem right. Pay attention. Why did God do what he did? What was he maybe trying to teach his followers or the Pharisees? What might he be trying to t teach you? And I would also encourage you um, just we're going to actually move into a time of worship today. Um, we're going to listen to this song called Here's My Heart, God. And I would love for you just in this moment to be able to think through your own wrestling, your own emotions that you came in with today. Man, if you came in with disappointment, discouragement, fear, anger, I would, I would challenge you just to sit with those emotions in this song and to give them to God and say, God, is, is there something that I'm believing today? that is not of you? Is there something today in the midst of all the things I'm feeling that you want to speak into and rearrange? Is there something that I'm, I'm fearful of bringing to you that you want to tell me today? It's okay. It's okay to bring that. And I truly believe that I could, I could talk up here for hours, but God wants to speak to each person here individually. He sees you. He loves you. He cares about you. And I just want to give you the space then to have that moment with him. 
Um, and maybe even if you're, if you're online, if you're, if you're watching, maybe some people even watching online say, I'm that person. I don't, I don't really know that I want to go to a church right now. I feel like I've been hurt. I've been wounded. It's okay. I just want, I want you to know this is a space where you can just be yourself. Come as you are. This isn't a magical moment. You may not have some like amazing revelation. I think sometimes we can, we can feel like, oh my gosh, everyone else was crying around me and I, I didn't have this moment with God I was supposed to have. Nope, it's okay. It's okay if you sit there and you just, and you just want to take a moment to, to rest as well. That's okay. But I'm going to pray over us as we enter this time. I just want you to feel encouraged that God sees you and he loves you and he holds you, not, not in spite of your, your questions and wrestling, but precisely in those things. God, I thank you that you are a God who is so much bigger than all the questions that we have. Um, God, I thank you that you hold that you hold everything, that you see everything. God, I pray for the people, especially today, who feel wounded, who feel hurt, um, who feel discarded or forgotten, who feel um, un- unsafe or uncomfortable and, and not sure how to share what they're feeling. God, I pray that especially for those people, you would show them that you see them, that you're there for them, that you're holding them, and that just like the woman who was bleeding, that God, that you would stop everything to be with them right now and meet with them. Please fill us with your presence.